This episode of Tova is primarily about youth mental health and youth suicide. We want you to be safe. If you or anyone who might be listening with you may find it challenging, please stop listening now. And remember, help is available from a range of organisations. We've put their contact details in the episode description. We're building a new mental health system from the ground up. What I want to do is have a dedicated Minister of Mental Health so it's not treated as a second-class health issue, it's right there at the Cabinet table. The second thing we need to do is have targets like we're going to have across the whole of the healthcare sector. We've been putting counsellors in schools, we've got programmes like Mana Ake in schools targeting our young people that are delivering real outcomes. Access and choice, which means that you can go to your GP and you can get a referral to a free <coughs> mental health counselling session. That's delivered over a million counselling sessions now. But one of the things that we can do is actually power up our community organisations organisations in a much okay. better way. Cool. So yeah. I'd like to take an organisation like, say, Gumboot Friday, Great. does 19,000 counselling sessions. And we hear you on that one. So give, Chris Hipkins, yeah, get money to them. help. And that was about the most we've heard Chris Hipkins and Christopher Lutzen talk about mental health this election campaign. They were slugging, or at least gently slapping it out in the first televised leaders debate. And because we don't feel the politicians have been talking about it enough, we're dedicating this episode of the podcast to mental health. Of course it took too long, but you, you can't build something out of nothing. It takes time to build these systems. Kia ora Aotearoa, I'm Tova O'Brien and welcome to Tova, a stuff podcast. Later, Andrea Vance and Luke Malpass with their analysis of the week that was and the week to come. We've got Health Minister slash Labour Health spokesperson Aisha Verrill with us. We were supposed to be speaking to National too, but they refused because they haven't yet released their mental health policy. First though... New Zealand's youth suicide rate is the second worst in the developed world. It's more than twice the average among the OECD countries surveyed. Every year we lose around 61 10 to 19-year-olds. These are kids to suicide. And that number isn't budging. This episode we talked to Leanne and Gareth Hall. Here they are describing the tattoos they got this year in memory of their daughter Maddie. Purple was her favourite colour and um, butterflies were a bit of a theme of her service and semicolon there, which is a symbol of battling through mental health. Right. Is it? Yeah, Yeah, as in it's not the end. Yeah. And the yin-yangs are sort of the two different sides of Maddie, her mental health side and her just gorgeous girl side. She drew that from me last year and it was all her sort of colours and everything and her little writing, so I thought I'll go have a bit of her artwork. It's beautiful. Yeah, they're both beautiful. Madeline Grace Hall's life is also indelibly tattooed on the mental health system. The admissions for self-harm, cutting, poisoning, starving, the psychosis, the hallucinations, the suicide attempts. All up, more than 100 visits to hospital and A&E, including four times in ICU, two via rescue helicopter, 10 visits to Starship. Then there were the police who had to restrain her, the paramedics who had to triage and sedate her, the more than 90 consultations and sessions with mental health services and a private psychiatrist, over 1,000 hours in hospital. But the picture of Maddie is, of course, not some exercise in painting by numbers. It's a young girl's life. A young girl lost, unwell, spiralling, but so loved her family torn apart with grief and a profound sense of helplessness, making the hardest number to grapple with the lowest of them all. One. What her parents have identified as one single final attempt. 
a suspected suicide referred to the coroner and the subject of a serious incident review. Maddie Hall was just 16 years old when she died on March 31st this year. Madeline's parents, Gareth and Leanne Hall, are with me now. Welcome. Hi. I mean, I can't even imagine what that's like to hear, let alone begin to imagine what that was like to live. Do you want to start by telling me what Madeline was like? Madeline was, well, she, Maddie, we called her Maddie. She was um, born by bungee jump. She, one big push and out she came. Don't worry, the labour wasn't that easy. But she, and that's kind of how she was. She was quick to do everything, very independent quickly, put it, you know, everything, and a really happy wee girl that loved creating. She, you know, hit her, all her milestones, was a picture of health, and really, um, you know, started school, made friends, tried lots of different activities, and, yeah, you know, and we... Asked, or we were so proud to be. We are so proud to be her parents. So, yeah, and she was just a gorgeous delight of a of a daughter, and hugely empathetic and caring as well. From what you were telling us earlier, yeah, even from a young age, she plays into you know when new babies came along, she'd be the one looking after babies, or if one of the boys had you know stubbed his toe or something, you know, she'd be treating that like a little nurse, and you know. That carried through so right to the end, really. And when did Maddie start showing signs of depression and uh, of suicidal thoughts? Um, we didn't see any signs. Um, we found out about it all of a sudden um, when um, one night we found Maddie <laughs> was the first we knew about it. She had um, just kept up a mask, it turned out, for about three years, um, continued on without us um knowing about it. Um, so, yeah, there were no obvious early warning signs. It was a, a sudden shock to find out what she was going through. And from that sudden shock, that was kind of the start of her interactions with the, the mental health system. What were some of those early interactions like? Yeah, well, we immediately went to CAMS, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, the next day, <clears throat> and Maddie um, was taken up to Child and Family Unit at Starship Hospital, where I think the first day was about um, about seven days. And that was all new, new to us, and we didn't realise at that stage, you know, what a massive um, journey it would be, or how hard it would be. Um, once Maddie was discharged and re returned to Tauranga, she went to, to CAMS there. And that was a... Uh, a difficult process, I suppose, um, sort of one of the main reasons being that um, Maddie never built a rapport with in, anyone there, and one of the reasons for that, she didn't have a, a key worker. A key worker is someone who's assigned to a child who's their point of contact and someone they can confide in and is, um, hopefully build rapport with, build a relationship with that can lead on to therapy, not necessarily. And that took but, months. Yeah, well, it was over three months until um, Maddie had an actual key worker assigned. She sort of saw the psychiatrist and the CAMS team leader and that, but sort of they were the ones who had sent her to Starship. So I don't think she was ever going to have a relationship with, with them. How critical do you think that early intervention would have been, could have been, had Maddie had someone that understood her, that showed compassion and empathy towards her from the outset? Looking back, I think that was a huge opportunity for somebody to get in there and make a change and help Maddie. 
yeah, and I think eventually when we ended up with a private psychiatrist, it was a little bit, little too late. You know, like I think she she had sort of gone downhill so quick, so much in that time. So mm-hmm. I think it was quite crucial to have um, that help early on. Yes, Maddie still had within the first those first three months, she'd had five, I think, suicide attempts and. Um, more than that, A&E admissions dur- during that time in the first three months. And, uh, yeah, so I think no matter how good her private psychiatrist was, and he was really good, um, he, he was a great man actually, um, but we didn't get on to that until a, a year a year later. But I, I think an opportunity was, was missed to really make a difference for, for Maddie there. And we'll talk more about how you felt the, the public and the private system interacted um, later as well. But in terms of some of those, uh, in the correspondence that you've shared with us and some of your diary entries as well, you detail some of those really dark moments with Maddie when she's, you know, at her lowest, when she's really struggling. There are hallucinations, talks about this almost kind of alternative personality, Jessica, who she... Um, put some of the the more emotional parts of herself on. Can you talk talk us through what that time was like for you as parents? Yeah, well, you know it was difficult. It's you know obviously an emotional roller coaster for us. Um, but for Maddie, who was actually living through those experiences, um, we would cry out for help. We'd send emails to cams, and we'd never get an answer. So we really felt alone in our journey. And it probably made Maddie feel alone also. It was so physically and mentally taxing. Maddie would dissociate where she's in a trance-like state and just leave the house and wander the streets through people's properties, having no idea what she's um, doing. And we'd have to um, call the ambulance and the police. The police were definitely needed to apologise to all the people whose properties Maddie was just wandering through, having no idea what she was doing. And in the end, the ambulance was needed to to give Maddie a sedation injection um, to, to bring her out of um, the state she was in, and then she'd have to go to go to hospital after that um, for for monitoring. But the hallucinations and that, like one time, Maddie was just writhing around on the bed, um, saying, "Get him off me! Get him off me!" Um, she had this figure called Elijah, who was always a shadow in her room. And Elijah was a was attacking her, and you know, on there, I was sleeping on the floor in her room. We had to sleep in her room um, every night. Um, Leanne slept in the bed with her. I obviously slept on the floor. But Maddie then went into the bathroom, and um, she said she had blood running down her legs, blood all over her face, um, and then she was sort of verbally sort of um, having a go at me for, for not, not stepping in and, and saving her. Whereas obviously if there was a dude attacking her, I would have bloody sorted him out. But, you know, with an hallucination, you, you can't do that. And I think the hardest thing is Maddie told us literally every day that she wanted to die, you know, almost every day. And as a parent, it's tough. Yeah, broke us day in, day out. Um, and, you know, we were hearing it, but also that was our little girl. Mm. Mm. Beyond distressing, Did, you're okay to continue? Yep, all good. Yep. So clearly we're talking about a young girl with really complex needs. She's now mm-hmm. in the system. 
they've identified and they're diagnosing Maddie. She's going through this process. Mm-hmm. Did the system continue to let Maddie down? Yeah, we well, we came to the conclusion, Cam's. We had her sort of in the system for 11 months and everything had deteriorated. So we had to try something new. Um, and that's when we went to a private psychiatrist. Yeah, which was fantastic. But with such a high needs patient, you actually need help from both the private and public sector. So, and it was a little bit like mixing oil and water. The expe- expectations on the private psychiatrist were huge. Whereas, when Maddie was under the CAMS team, the psychiatrist wasn't expected to do all those sorts of things. So it definitely, um, yeah, we we didn't feel like, you know, I expected Maddie with those diagnoses would be wrapped around with every sort of mental health worker, you know, coming at her to help. But it essentially was just Gareth and I um, as parents and maybe, you know, a few minutes with the mental health workers each week, which... Yeah, and us having to live um, with all of these symptoms, well, Maddie experiencing these symptoms and living around it, um, and not really getting a response from the mental health professionals, you know, it was incredibly frustrating. And you two obviously saw Maddie the most, you cared for Maddie the most, you talked about sleeping in her her bed and on her floor every night. Did you feel seen and did you feel heard? No, I mean, to be fair to Cam's, Maddie didn't interact with them when we were in there she would just put her head between her legs and a hoodie over her face um, but that doesn't mean that that the mental health professionals should they didn't stop trying but we would send them emails sort of describing um, you know Maddie's hallucinations dissociation what she was saying about wanting to kill herself every day and you know we would very rarely um, get a response response to that and in the end, in a, it was a multi-services um, sort of meeting about Maddie, Cam's um, told us to stop sending them emails. And, you know, I'm not a mental health expert, obviously, but I would have thought that, you know, telling the mental health people, you know, what Maddie's doing during the day, what her behaviours are, what her crisis situations are, um, would be useful mm. for them to know, um, you know, in terms of, you know, a treatment plan or, or, or whatever, but in the end they said, you know, stop, stop, send, stop sending us um, emails. Whereas the private psychiatrist, when we emailed him, he he would respond ninety percent of the time that day with just you know helpful advice, you know, for, for things we could try with Maddie and and that, um, which probably at the end they didn't. Well, at the end, it didn't make a difference because Maddie's a real difference because Maddie's not with us. Mm-hmm. But at, at least it gave us comfort that someone was trying their utmost to help Maddie. And wanting to piece mm. together as well yeah. what was going on yeah. with her, right? Yeah, and he believed that, you know, if we could get Maddie to sort of 18 or so, we could get her through. So, mm. you know, just that belief from him sort of kept us motivated. Hope. And, yeah, mm. and on board, so... Yeah. And so beyond telling you to stop emailing them and sharing some of your observations, they also, it feels like from some of the correspondence we've seen, you were sometimes blamed for what was described as your ambivalence towards CAMS, towards the system. How did that make you feel on top of everything else that you were going through? I think deflated, really. Yeah. yeah. It was the most 
apart from dealing with Maddie's crisis situations themselves, which are obviously pretty horrific, it was the single most um, crushing um, thing. Um, I mean, we, you know, did absolutely everything um, we could to, to help Maddie, and you know, but in a CAMS discharge letter, they stated that Leanna's and I's attitude towards towards it, and I think they may have used the word ambivalence. Um, you know, made things more difficult um, for, for Maddie, but we had nothing but care and, and love for Maddie, and, and Maddie reciprocated that. She she knew that. I've got, you know, no doubt. I mean, Maddie said it herself that, you know, when she was with us, that, you know, we were the reason why she was. She was um, still, still alive. And... Um, it was just a breath of fresh air when we did sort of see a private psychiatrist. And at a few points as well, you not only people large criminal laid criminal charges against Maddie, and you were encouraged to as well. Yeah, we um, so we can talk more to that. But Cam's obviously some of the psychosis and incidents. Maddie, you know, had a little bit of go at Gareth and I, and there was a hustle or whatever. Well, Cam's wanted us to lay charges on our daughter. And we were like, she's a fragile, mentally ill, fourteen-year-old girl. She wasn't even aware. She wasn't even a lot of the time. She wasn't even aware. She couldn't remember anything. She's basically sort of lost, semi-lost consciousness with the dissociation. Yeah, so we were never going to do that. And how would that make somebody that feels worthless feel? Yeah. So no, we weren't going to go that way. And the fact that Cam's was actually encouraging to us, it just seems, yeah, unhelpful. And there was a an example that you told me about as well when she was in Starship and you had told you told the staff there to call under any circumstances mm-hmm. and there was a night where Maddie had nightmares and they didn't call. Walk us through what happened. Yeah, it was about two thirty, three in the morning and yeah, as you said, Maddie had had nightmares and so she just wanted to talk to Leanne you know, to have some comfort from her mum. And we'd said to Starship staff, you know, we just ring us um, 24-7. Um, but this nurse um, didn't allow Maddie um, to, to ring Leanne. So you've got a, you know, mentally ill, scared 14-year-old who's just had nightmares. Uh, all she wants to is talk just to her mum. Um, and so Maddie um, stabbed the nurse with a blunt colouring-in pencil um, and just in the arm, and that nurse actually laid criminal charges against Maddie. You know, and this is in an environment that's supposed to be um, caring for her. You know, not doing something that's going to make her mental health even worse, mm. um, which, which it did. But I suppose the most shocking thing about it is we went in the next day and Maddie always had, when she was in isolation and Starship, two watches on her guards, mm. basically. Um, but one of the ladies who was doing that job um, told us that the nurse had, had spoken to Maddie like a piece of shit on the bottom of her shoe. Um, so, as I said, how's a ill 14-year-old girl um, supposed to react to that? It's mm. it's. It's an overall just lack of understanding by people working in mental health who should know the best, you would have thought. Mm. And the outcome would have been quite different if she'd just followed the care plan and let Maddie make the call. Mm. Yeah. Frustrating. What do you see, and you've um, 
told me prior to the interview that this isn't about you know singling anyone out. This is about a system failure. What, what do you identify as the the key things that went wrong? Now that you've taken a bit of time, you've collated all the correspondence, you're going through the coronial inquest and also a, a separate investigation. Where do you see the key failings in the, the mental health system? I believe there aren't enough beds um, in hospitals for suicidal teenagers. Uh, they're pretty much in starship and shipped out pretty quickly. Um, at least when they're in hospital, it might not be the ideal place for them, but they're kept safe. So I think Maddie was being discharged so quickly after some of these mm-hmm. really serious attempts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was Starship's philosophy, which they reminded us regularly that um, to discharge um, the children, you know, as soon as possible, because care in the community is shown to work better than being institutionalised. But when someone is, um, you know, as suicidal as what Maddie was, you know, her last discharge letter you know, stated, very last sentence, Maddie remains a risk to herself and others. And less than two months after that, Maddie passed away. Like, you don't need to say anything more than that to realise that's not right. Because you can't take a cookie-cutter approach to this, right? Every child and every individual needs to be treated as an individual, and, and Maddie's mm. case was very specific and it was very complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously in the mental health sector, there's a there's a staffing issue, and um, I'm, I'm sure the, the government and, and the National Party are, are well aware of that. Um, so hopefully think things are done there. Um, but in Maddie's particular case, um, as mentioned, not having that key worker um, for, for, for three months, I, I think, was um, was critical. And the feedback I've given the District Health Board inquiry so far is it's not rocket science. Care, care and empathy are just um, huge. You, you can, as parents, we could tell, you know, who had real compassion and, and empathy because we felt that. And these um, kids, they're even more sensitive to it than that. Mm. If someone doesn't genuinely care, mm. if they're just doing it because it's their job, they, 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 will, they will know that. Um, Maddie went to Northern Health School, um, which is um, school that um, that um, mainly mental mentally ill kids go to, and like they were the best example of care and empathy. Mm. Maddie had a new teacher and didn't talk to him for two months, but they played card games, they wrote notes. You know, Maddie ended up making dog tags for for her teachers' mm. dogs at a resin. You know, she's very arty and creative. They built a rapport, you know, and in the end Maddie did, did start talking to them. And speaking to Maddie's friends as well who are in the system at camps, they just wanted to get straight, in, straight into therapy. These these kids, they're not ready, most of them, they're not ready for that straight away. Mm. You, you cannot do therapy unless you have, um, have built up a, a rapport. And I think to build a rapport, you need to show that um, care and empathy. I'm not sure how, how you can train that, but um, it's um, something that we didn't feel much of in mm. the in the public service, apart from the, the medical nurses and doctors mm. were actually the best. Yeah. Mm. Um, and Maddie actually spoke to them about her mental health. 
you know, but the, these were actually the medical doctors and nurses. Mm. Maddie felt comfortable doing it's that. Instinctive. But, but, yeah, but for whatever reason, those in the mental health system um, seem to have the, the least un- understanding, yeah. which is... Probably burnout mm. for them, if you know, because it should really be a core yeah. competency to yeah. have that care, mm. empathy, compassion. Yeah, so you know, if it's not happening, I, I to me, looking in, it seemed like there was... I guess burnout, or, mm. or or it just wasn't overworked. And yeah, a core competency for the um, employers. And how are you guys holding up now? Because it's really not been, and this will be something you live with for the rest mm. of your lives. Mm. But it really hasn't been long since Maddie passed. How are you bearing up? Was, well, I feel like it's as good as can be. Um, you know, we have some pretty tough days and moments. Um, yeah, there's nothing nice about mm. being a bereaved mum of a child who's mm. died to suicide. Doing things like this, we're doing it because I just can't be a kid's going through that shit. <laughs> and neither could Maddie. So we're really doing this for her because she, she, you know, she... Um, pushed away a lot of her old school friends and most of her friends she corresponded with um, were others with mental health struggles, but she was amazing at, at helping them. And at her funeral service, just the um, the speeches that were done by by a lot of kids were just just amazing. And that's because Maddie had helped them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so struggling obviously, but um, pushing on for Maddie, mm. as, as Leanne said. Cause it's sort of her legacy to try and get some better services for other mentally ill children and adolescents so that Maddie could be proud of the system change. Which is really is enormous what both of you are doing because to go through what you've gone through is unfathomable, but then to speak about it and to really use that experience to help others is beyond commendable. Um, Maddie's Brother and and her friends, how are they coping now? Are they is this going to be okay for them hearing this story come up again? I think they're proud of us for putting it out and proud that Maddie yeah. would want a sort of fight for better mental health services. Yeah, I think they'll be pleased that we're sort of mm-hmm. fighting through for better. Yeah. Maddie's two closest friends, um, you know, who call us mum and dad. Um, you know, we've spoken to them about this and, you know, what, what we're doing and um, they're all for it. And, um, yeah, one of Maddie's friends, a little gymnast, and she was going to quit, but Maddie encouraged her to keep on going. And, you know, Maddie's friend made it to gymnastics nationals and well at gymnastic nationals and and she dedicated that to, um, to, to, to Maddie. So. Mm. She just sounds like the most amazing young woman. Mm. And you clearly loved her as endlessly as she yeah. loved you. Yeah, yeah. she's yeah. definitely a little pocket rocket. Mm. Thank you very much again for, for speaking with us and sharing your story. Yeah, no problem. Appreciate yeah. it. Let's hope it moves for some change. Thank you. In response to questions we put to the healthcare providers responsible for Maddie's care, Te Whatu Ora told us, when there is a tragic outcome involving a service user, we take this very seriously and conduct a serious incident review. They are currently undertaking that review and also told us, as Madeline's case is currently active before the coroner, we are unable to provide further comment at this time. 
Also, just to note, the beep that you heard in that interview is because suicide reporting guidelines prevent us from referring to methods. Labor's health spokesperson, Aisha Verrill, joins me now. Kia ora, Aisha. Kia ora, Tova. Did the health system fail Maddie Hall? Yeah, look, I can only imagine what a loss it must be to have someone you love and care for and have raised as your child die um, of suicide and um, uh, while receiving care from uh, from our health system. Um, as you know, the court, um, case... Uh, Maddie's cases before the coroner, so I'm not able to draw that sort of um, conclusion now. It is very important that the coroner has the opportunity to do uh, do their investigation as well as our health services too. Uh, but let me say that it is, you know, we have a goal of eliminating all deaths from uh, from suicide, and uh, it is um, an absolutely tragic outcome that we want to make sure that we minimise and avoid. So let me put that another way then. Is the mental health system, and particularly the parts of the mental health system that are there to support young people, is it in crisis? Yeah, I think across our health system, uh, but particularly in the mental health system, there is uh, challenges with, um, uh, with staffing in particular. I think that is the key thing. And then also there have been historic underinvestment in facilities, uh, which can also contribute to uh, the safety of people in our, um, also reduce the safety of people in our care. So I'm, I certainly accept that there, those are important issues that we have to absolutely have to address for the safety of of people. And you know, I totally um, understand the issue here, which is that when people are ill, they are in care in order to be protected, and when they um, uh, when they die or are otherwise harmed in care, that is a absolutely critical issue for the system to take responsibility for. So that is a yes, though. The mental health system is in crisis. Yeah, Tober, I don't tend to use that word because I think that it doesn't um, empower people to have a solutions-focused conversation about what we need to do. Um, but I am not shying away from the fact that this is a um, this is an extremely serious problem. What's happening within a system to allow someone who is so completely caught in the net to still fall through the cracks? Look, as I said, that particular um, case, we need to see the investigation go through. But you could, um, with all um, of these types of events in health systems, you often find multiple causes contribute and it's never any one thing. And hence the requirement to really look across all the ways in which systems can be improved. I don't want to speak to this particular case for the reasons I've mentioned, but in general, sometimes you will find recommendations and reports about staffing, about patient rights, about the involvement of family and whānau in care, because they're often perhaps kept at arm's length when actually they know what is going on with their, their loved one uh, better. Um, yeah. Sometimes it's about the appropriate use of the uh, legal tools we have under the under the Act as well. All of those are the sorts of things that we should um, address in order to make sure these things don't happen. It feels like we should have addressed them by now, and all of those things that you just mentioned were also raised in the mental health inquiry as well. 
Yeah, indeed, and there has been there has been considerable progress with responding to the mental health inquiry. And if you want me to uh, go into that, I that I can. I think but we I, will over the over the course of the interview. But I just want to I want to focus in here because I recognise that that some studies show that getting kids back into the community faster is is best practice. But for kids with extreme, complex, acute mental health needs, does there need to be more flexibility in the system? What do you mean by that, Tova? I want to extrapolate out from Maddie's case yeah. and talk about kids who are in Starship or in acute mental health facilities who are discharged really quickly after admission because that's the, the practice of the facilities. Um, well, this come, does come back to uh, the sorts of things that need to be explored in each case's review. Uh, I don't believe um, when you exercise clinical judgment over someone you're um, the responsible doctor is looking after that having a general rule we discharge quickly is appropriate. It always has to be based on a risk assessment of that person, their particular situation. Um, now, it may be that uh, that assessment was wrong um, and an investigation may find that, or it may be that it was um, uh, incorrectly, the assessment was correct but incorrectly acted on. It's speculation to go, uh, to go into that in this particular case, but that is the sort of... Um, the, where I'd expect an investigation to go. Okay, well, and maybe that's something that, does that message need to be shared again with facilities? Because that was certainly the, the experience of Maddie's parents and indeed two months before her death, she was discharged from hospital and her discharge note said she, is still, she still poses a risk to herself and to others. In that situation, though, I... Um, People who do get discharged, uh, and I mean it is um, sadly true that uh, people manage suicide in the suicidal risk and ideation in the in the community. Uh, there is a judgment there about whether um, Maddie's particular situation um, was appropriately managed in the community, and that is where the investigation has to has to go into that. So. Um, I think the discharge itself um, uh, needs to, um, it's not that one particular thing that is um, clearly wrong. It would need to be in that particular situation and how that assessment was made. Okay, Maddie's grandmother wrote to you raising concerns about Maddie's care. Do you remember that letter? Yeah, I do. You offer condolences, you explain the parts of the Mental Health Act she was concerned about, you acknowledge her frustration and you recommend the Health and Disability Commissioner as an avenue for investigation. Could you, though, should you have personally pursued this? There were clearly failings in the system. Her family was laying that out for you. Is it not something that you should have or could have personally pursued? Uh, I think in terms of um, when there is an investigation, um, no. But I do want to say there wasn't that, at that point um, that I have um, in this role met with the uh, parents who have had um, experiences like Maddie's uh, parent. I think it is important that I am, um, uh, if they ask, um, front up to them and hear what they have to say. But in terms of directing um, them towards investigations, that is not my role as minister. Uh, and they do, and the coroner uh, and the Health and Disability Commissioner is the appropriate way for that because they have powers to um, uh, take prosecutions, uh, to make findings that will give the families 
the resolution they need, which is that system fixes are made. Well, I mean, we see so many repeat themes, though, don't we, in in those coronial findings with suicides in New Zealand, and we have for decades gone by. So sure, perhaps to an extent, but not holistically and not as we've kind of uncovered in the mental health inquiry anyway. I do wonder, I mean, are you too busy perhaps to be looking into all of those different cases and meeting with all of those families? And is there an argument for a specific mental health minister as the Nats are proposing? Uh, Look, I think that that is um, uh, not a bad proposal. I'm not personally um, opposed to it. It isn't how uh, Labour Prime Ministers have, have constructed their cabinet um, I don't believe um, too busy is how I would put it, though. Uh, I think you, um, the government has made a number of reforms in mental health via the Minister of Health with all their other commitments. And uh, while we continue to have um, unacceptable um, things happen, like has happened to Maddie and her family, uh, and we still have mental health problems in our community, we have also made considerable progress on the uh, goals that we set for ourselves. Let's, yeah, let, let's talk about some of that progress. One of the things that Maddie's parents would like to see more of are acute youth mental health beds. How many more has Labor created since that $1.9 billion budget in 2019? Yeah, so going back to the $1.9 billion, though, Tova, very little of it was for the creation of new beds. Most of it was for what the, one of the key recommendations of the Um, review was that we develop a primary mental health system uh, and that was that was a a key part of it. Yeah we'll come to that in a moment but how many more acute youth mental health beds have been put in place or created? I would have to get that that specific piece of information for you but again that wasn't an emphasis those um, uh, in terms of beds for youth acute mental health was not an emphasis of the report. Perhaps it should should um, be. Perhaps it should uh, be. How, well, how much has yes, how much how I'm much is that one point nine billion dollars? How much since the twenty nineteen sorry minister? How much since the budget in twenty nineteen? How much has that reduced the wait time for a young person to access mental health care? Yeah, I imagine like all um, of our wait times, we have had to we have a catch up job following the pandemic, and I know that youth uh, mental health is is part of of that because, and I just want to, but I do want to go back to this issue. Because we are often asked what became of the $1.9 billion spend. And of that, um, of the parts that were in health, the vast majority of it was in the access and choice uh, area in the in the community. And very little of it was for specialist uh, services. Uh, some of the people who, uh, I guess what you might call specialists, was outside of health. So it was in corrections, for example, the increase in services there have all been uh, delivered on time. Okay. What's the average wait time in days for a young person to access mental health services? Oh, Tove, I know it goes to I know it goes to months. Um, in in some cases, of course, not for crisis services, but for community mental health services. You talk about the one point nine billion being used for for access. How much did that budget boost? How many full time staff has Labor added to the mental health workforce uh, as a result? In access and choice, there's over a thousand full time equivalents. Okay, it says, it says 900 on your website. Andrew Little said 1,200 last year. So how has it shrunk by 200 or 300, depending on whether I believe you or the Labor Party website? Uh, look, the latest data I had is that it was over 1,000. Uh, 1, we get re- uh, full-time equivalents. 
Perhaps someone was talking about number of people, which of course is different from full-time equipments. Yeah, the last report I have is it's just over a thousand. Are any of those additional FTEs, staff, health improvement practitioners that are working in GP clinics? Uh, so the Access and Choice program uh, occurs in four different settings, one of which is um, in GP settings, the um, GP clinics often available uh, that day or not long after as okay. a drop-in service. There's also youth, Māori and Pacific services. To, to become a health improvement practitioner, you have to already be a health practitioner, right? A counsellor, a social mm-hmm. worker, or working in addiction services. It says on the, that's what it says on the Te Whātu Auto website for people who want to sign up. So they're already on the mental health front line, these people. You're just kind of shuffling them about. Um, I think a mix of both, and I th- certainly think in the early parts of the program there was. So, some how movement. many have you actually added to the mental well, health it's, front line? It's hard for me to say that um, in relation to that particular program, but we're growing the number of psych- psychologists by 700. Uh, we have a new training pathway for nurses to get specialist accreditation in mental uh, mental health. There's um, uh, several going. Of those 800 roles how, that you celebrated with me just before, how many of them are new additional people to the mental health workforce? Um, well, a lot of the, almost all of the health coaches um, and and it's very hard for me to, uh, look, I don't have that figure, but clearly the mental health workforce has grown. It hasn't just been moving people around, but it is absolutely a um, area where there needs to be further further growth, both through immigration and domestic training. And we have a number of um, uh, uh, training streams that we are um, growing, both nursing, occupational therapy and social work and psychologists. Okay, so you haven't been able to tell me how many new acute youth mental health beds there are, how long the wait times are for students. You haven't been able to tell me, uh, for people waiting for care, you haven't been able to tell me how many people have been added to the workforce. Is there anything you can tell me that Labor has achieved with that $1.9 billion? Yeah, I think it would be the vast majority of those thousand would be um, would be a net addition in the end. But I'm sorry I'm not able to... Uh, cut up the statistics in the precise can, way that you Can want. you tell me how many children, how many young people, adolescents are being turned away from child and adolescent mental health services or are being referred to the wrong service and how that compares prior to the 1.9 billion? Uh, those sorts of statistics aren't collected across the health system. And that's problematic as well, isn't it? Well, it, it is. And I think one of the um, things there is that is why we want to ask mental health questions through health surveys and others so that we can assess that which we do so that um so that we can assess unmet need and we know that there is unmet need particularly in the youth mental health area and that that has grown in recent years you can't tell me how long kids are waiting you can't tell me how many are being turned away and you can't explain to me why like maddie when they are in the system they are being failed these kids are being turned away left waiting failed how many vulnerable kids are being put at risk i think there is a uh, risk for young people and the mental health system works very hard to address that. There is services for people in, in crisis. There has been a huge growth in the services that are offered in the community, uh, including um, a vast array of community services uh, and um, whether that's phone lines, in-person services, uh, services in schools. Same phone lines uh, that are all striking in, this month. Uh, for, for parents our services for the kids at most risk in, in youth justice. Has Labor released a mental health policy this election? Has Labor been campaigning on mental health? Yeah, the main um, uh, issue for mental health we've identified is making sure that we continue to grow the mental health workforce. Yeah, so that includes the initiatives as part of our wider health workforce plan. 
uh, including training more more doctors, uh, training more nurses, uh, making sure that we continue to train uh, and a particular emphasis on training psychiatrists because that is an area of of uh, particular need. So that's it. That's like the sum total of Labor's mental health policy. The selection we're just going to keep on keeping on. Uh, we'll also review the Mental Health Act because uh, that that is the main recommendation of the. Uh, review that we're yet to yet to implement. Doesn't sound like it's much of a priority. Okay. Thank you so much for your time, Minister and uh, Labour Health Spokesperson Aisha Viral. Thank you. Now, you might think that coming out of an interview with a health minister who can't say how many acute youth mental health beds or actual additional staff have been added to the front line under her government or what the average wait time is for young people to access mental health services or how many young people are being turned away or wrongly referred, you might think coming out of an interview like that that the only word to follow would be resign. You might think that, but at least Aisha Verrill fronted. That's more than can be said for the National Party, who refused to be interviewed because they haven't released their mental health policy yet. Policy aside, there are still myriad questions to be asked and answered to ensure mistakes aren't repeated, that assurances are given from both major parties to fight to fix the system and prevent other lives being lost, no matter who's in charge after October 14th. So at least Beryl turned up for the interview and at least attempted to answer some really important questions relating to a young girl whose life ended far too soon and the mental health system in crisis that failed her. If anything, Beryl's inability to answer questions on Labour's record is further evidence of the need for a specific mental health minister, which is what the National Party is already calling for and could have made the case for in an interview. It was heartening too to hear Viral open to that, saying it's not a bad idea, she's not personally opposed to it, that it's Labour Prime Ministers who have neglected to pursue a standalone mental health role in Cabinet. I also took heart from her candour and willingness to accept that where the system fails, it must take responsibility. Beryl said that she totally understands the issue here, quote, which is that when people are ill, they're in care in order to be protected, and when they die or are otherwise harmed in care, that is an absolute critical issue for the system to take responsibility for. She said that it's not appropriate to have a general rule where patients are discharged quickly, that it has to be based on risk assessment of that person and their particular situation. She spoke generally but pointedly about the things that need to be addressed to make sure lives like Maddie's aren't lost. Staffing issues, patient rights about the involvement of family and whānau and care, how they're sometimes kept at arm's length when actually they know what's going on with their loved one best. She talked about the appropriate use of legal tools under the Mental Health Act. Maddie's parents believe these were all factors and failings in their daughter's care. Beryl was right to point out that she couldn't speak to Maddie's case specifically while the investigation is ongoing, but the fact she purely pulled examples that related to Maddie's experience with the mental health system felt like it was the minister's way of saying to Maddie's parents, I see you and I hear you. Much of this will be cold comfort to people who have lost so much, especially when we've seen these failures picked apart, poured over, investigated, analysed, reported on so many times before. The mental health inquiry was published five years ago. More needs to be done for kids like Maddie. More needs to be done for families like hers. We asked Maddie's parents if they had advice for other parents perhaps going through something similar. 
If you're not getting anywhere, if your child's not getting the treatment that they need, keep on pushing, Gareth Hall told us. We pushed a hell of a lot, he said, right to the top. And the upshot is, therein lies the problem. People like Gareth and Leanne Hall, who have dealt with so much more than any family should have to bear, have lived through so much trauma. They shouldn't have to keep on pushing to get the care from the system that the system was designed to deliver in the first place. It's good to hear the minister acknowledging that in so far as she could. Now it is time for action. That's my take. I'm interested to hear your thoughts too. Email tova at stuff.co.nz or even send us a voice memo. You might end up on the pod. We'll get to some of your feedback a little later. And I should note, we also chased up with Te Order the number of additional youth acute mental health beds in Auckland and Bay of Plenty where Maddie was treated. In Auckland, there have been zero new beds added in the last six years. They didn't say if there were any new beds in Tauranga, but did confirm that despite refurbishing the adults' acute mental health facility there, there will only be an increase of five beds and none, zero, for young people or adolescents. Mark, if we look at News Hub, the potential of that closing its entire operation in June, the cuts at TVNZ, what's at risk here? Well, look, we get into this whole thing, you know, democracy is at risk, but News Hub from their first days always tried to do things a little bit differently and may have been considered a little bit more sort of kick-ass and less respectful to the politicians. But you need that. I mean, our job is not to be sort of cheerleaders for whoever. It should be to sort of to question and, uh, and to keep people informed. If you don't have a news media sort of calling people out, it's the wild west. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. Now it is time for Snakes and Leaders, a look back at the week that was, who's shone and who's shit, with our exceptional national affairs editor for The Post and Sunday Star Times, Andrea Vance. Hello. Hello, how are you? Very well, thank you. Always happy when I'm speaking with you. And the debate season kind of dominated the campaign this week. I'm curious to know if your winner this week was also a debate winner. No, because it's very interesting what you said, who, Sean, and who was shit. Well, I do want to talk about shit um, because I think that the big issue of the week and the losers of the week are us, the water drinkers of New Zealand. I have been very frustrated this week at the focus that went on the debate because for me, the biggest issue that we should be talking about the election campaign and we're not is the provision of the most basic government service there is, the provision of clean drinking water. And if you live in Queenstown, that is not something that you can now have. You have to boil your water because of the presence of cryptosporidium, which is, and I have some family experience of this, it can be a very, very, very serious illness. Mm. And it's just absurd that in New Zealand, we can't deliver clean drinking water, especially after we had those absolutely devastating outbreaks in which people died in Havelock North. And then we had the lead poisoning incident in Otago. And we've had, what, two years of debate on the provision of water services, the three waters reforms, affordable water, as they're now called. And we're still probably years out from a fix because National has said they're going to repeal it. Even if Labour remain in power, those affordable water reforms, I mean, the first entity to go live will be Auckland. Wellington is mm. at least a year from now. So by the time they get to Queenstown, well, we're, we're going to be years down the track. And I just think that's that's a very serious issue that we should be talking about in the election campaign. And there ends my rant. No, no, rant <laughs> gratefully received. And so I suppose we're all kind of losers off the back of that. Yeah, every single person in New Zealand needs access to clean drinking water and it cannot be guaranteed. 
Thank you, Andrea. And and thank you for highlighting that as well, because as you say, the focus really has been on that first televised leaders debate. But let's get back to our, our knitting and the, and the kind of nuts and bolts of things that really matter. Have you got any other honourable or dishonourable mentions for us this week? <laughs> well, well, that, that said, I mean, I think you can't go past the fact that the winner of the week was Christopher Luxon, you know. <laughs> I mean, I would say that the debate of the week was not the TVNZ debate of the week. I don't want to get too tribal, but I have to say I found your debate on infrastructure much more interesting and illuminating. Um yes, you. But no, no, seriously, I did. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot from it. Yeah, uh, Christopher Luxon, all he had to do, as many commentators have said before me, all he had to do was go in and not screw it up. And he did do that. Uh, So, yeah, winner of the week probably probably goes to him. Yeah, and I think probably a tie in some parts, I thought. But then because Chris Hipkins so desperately needed to do better, um, it was definitely a win for Chris Luxon. I think the, the... the commentary, it's universally in agreement um, on that, isn't it? Yeah, I actually have a confession to make on that because I was watching it with the husband and he, he thought that Luxon was the winner. I actually thought that Hipkins was the better performer, I have oh. to say. He really needed to bring some fire to it, but I thought you really did see his flexibility and polish and his, you know, being an experienced parliamentarian. I thought that Christopher Luxon couldn't really pivot beyond his rehearsed lines. I mean, everyone else says that Luxon's the winner, so I'm willing to accept that I was probably wrong in that, not that I would ever say that to my husband. <laughs> Fair point, though, and, and thank you for sharing that in the confessional of the pod. Um, Andrea Vance, always a pleasure speaking with you. We'll talk again next week. Bye. Now it is time for the Beehive Buzz, what to look out for in the upcoming week with Stuff's political editor, Luke Malpass. Welcome, Luke. Hey, how are you, Toby? Very well, thank you. And pretty pumped because there is a big date in the electoral calendar upon us. Overseas voting opens. It's all on. It's happening. Yeah, that's right. So um, one of the interesting things I think about the elections now is that um, on some estimates there's going to be probably 80% of the population will have voted before election day. So 80% of eligible voters. So the election campaign is really going to be split into three. We saw the first two weeks, which ended this past weekend, and that was kind of everyone feeling their way into their groove. This week, with the first leaders' debate, we're really getting into the crucial middle two weeks of the six-week campaign before early voting starts. And as you say, uh, overseas voting starts, um, starts next Wednesday. And so this is really the week where it's going to be really crucial for all the parties to kind of spruik their wares because there'll be a lot of people, particularly people who have who have already decided or are just sick of it and want to tune out, who could go in and start voting you know, in basically a week's time. And then the final two weeks, while people are voting, that's really a, a game for particularly Labour and National, and that's about getting swing voters over the lines because swing voters wait till election day because they're like, well, I don't really know who to vote for. We'll just see. So the way that campaigns are calibrated is really quite different to what it was three, four elections ago. I always wait until election day. I like to wait until the last minute to hear absolutely everything and then make that call on the day. And I also love the ceremony and the kind of tradition of it, the fact that it finally goes quiet. Mm. The circus leaves town and you actually just get to participate in democracy. Oh, feels good. Um, Luke, I don't know what the the collective noun is for debates. Perhaps a a debauch of debates are coming up over the next week. Yeah, yeah, there's a there's a whole pile. Um, we're going to begin to see the minor parties. We have the second major leaders debate, uh, which is a news hub debate, which I think is the middle of next week. Co-Papa Māori debate, uh, TVNZ Young Voters debate, and The Post is having an ocean policy debate. So there's a whole pile of different things coming up for different people. And obviously at the same time, 
electorates all around the country. We also have candidate meetings, which are essentially debates. Yeah, all eyes, I think, on that uh, News Hub leaders debate as well after the, the TVNZ leaders debate. I think there's a lot more that we want to see from those two leaders and they'll be taking notes about probably needing to bring a bit more fire as well to that next televised debate. Luke, always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much and have a wonderful week. Thanks so much, Tova, and you. I am always interested to hear from you too. Email tova at stuff.co.nz and producer Chris has been fosking around in the inbox. What have you got for us this week, Chris? How are you? Great. There's How not, are you? Straight into it. There's no pleasantries there. Oh, sorry. Hello. How? <laughs> Never mind the fact that we've been sitting in the same room together for the last three hours. But how are you this morning, Chris? I'm very today? good, thank you. How are you? Very well, thank you. Okay. Yes. Here we go. Here's some fossicking. Murray wrote to you. I was going to say us, but I don't think he'd be writing to me. It's not entirely true. No. Murray got in touch to say he was impressed at how adult the participants in your infrastructure debate were. No shouting, no dogma, no slogans, relatively speaking. And Murray says, I thought James Shaw was the epitome of genteel put-downs with mm. his, I haven't quite finished, control of the interjections. <laughs> all in all, the first time, Murray says... Any political debate sounded like adults governing a country as opposed to a slogan festival. Chalk and cheese compared to the later leaders' debate. Thank you very much for that, Murray. And I, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised as well. Well, part of me was, but also, you know, as a um, kind of lowest common denominator hyperbolic reporter, I quite like a little bit of mudslinging as well, which there wasn't a lot of. But I, I yeah, I agree. I think that James Shaw as well, yep, amazing cut downs. Shane Jones as well, I thought, kind of excelled on that. I got quite frustrated that despite all this kind of cross-party bipartisanship and agreement about how they can ensure pipelines for infrastructure. Despite all that chat, the reality is that they're all still going to repeal each other's things and they can't get any agreement. And James Shaw pointed that out as well. You know, there are always going to be politics in, in these things. You know, you're never going to get the Nats supporting a cycle bridge over the Auckland Harbour. We haven't had consensus on like rail, three waters, the RMA. But yeah, I, th I thought overall it was it was a good chat. I think for a lot of people, infrastructure can be about as um, dry as eating a sheet of jib. But it is important. It is fundamental to everything that we do. The water that I'm drinking in this cup here, the, the rates that I pay, getting stuck in traffic, everything. I could go on forever. And if you want to check out that debate... You can on stuff.co.nz. Yeah, and particularly in light of what Andrew was saying about the water supply. Here, here. Yep, exactly right. Those fundamental things that we need Basic to get right. Human rights. The next email that I pulled out was from Marcel in Christchurch. And Marcel says, Hi, Tova. At the last okay. election, about half the country voted to decriminalise the marijuana laws. You know the numbers better than I do. My issue is with money flowing from individuals and families' pockets to the gangs and associated dealers. I guess Marcel means in the current state. He says, even the bloody doctor told me without giving me medical marijuana that he would be better off by 50% if he'd known where to buy any. He's 68 and with cancer and other issues and there's a pension. He doesn't know where to buy any and he hasn't smoked in a very long mm. time. We know, Marcel says, Luxon will not change his views and I wonder why Labour is ignoring the topic. Gangs are thriving for this very reason. That's two birds with one stone right there or, as we say in Holland, where I presume he comes from, two flies with one clap of the hands. Two birds, one stoner. What? <laughs> 
So why is everybody ignoring the obvious green elephant in the room? Even Germany is changing laws to allow three plants and 25 grams. Please run with this issue because no one else does. Thank you very much, Marcel and Christchurch. And you please don't go um, seeking out your local uh, tinny house on your doctor's recommendation or not. And it's a great question. And we are keen to do more on this on the pod as well. You're right, the uh, legalised cannabis referendum fell no 51% and 49% voted yes. So it was really like, you know, almost a, a photo finish. And I do wonder if had the referendum addressed decriminalisation rather than legalisation of recreational cannabis, if we'd have seen a different result, if we'd be having a different conversation now. And you're right, the government would argue that because they changed the police discretion around cannabis, remember, um, so police now kind of encourage not to prosecute on cannabis convictions, that there has been quite a significant drop, 48% since that change uh, for convictions of cannabis use and possession. But yeah, don't expect Labour or National to go anywhere near this. They think it would be to disrespect the result of the referendum, or at least they use that as an excuse. Act in all its libertarian glory is all for all drugs to be decriminalised and the Greens, no guesses there. But we, as I say, we are really interested in this topic and uh, we'll look into it a bit more for you at some point, Marcel, as well. Yes, thanks Marcel. Just before we finish the feedback session, some feedback from Tova and myself. Obviously, we've covered some confronting issues in this episode of the pod. Uh, we just want to acknowledge that we know life can be really fucking hard sometimes. Personally speaking, I've, I've been open in the past. I've written about my own mental health struggles. I'd just like to say that I've come through those and I'm living a really productive, constructive life. That's not to belittle anybody that's going through them now, but there is hope if you talk to people and have great people around you, you can get through them. Thank you, Chris, and thank you for sharing that as well. Um, we know it's tough out there, and there are a whole lot of organisations that are there to support you, and we will have a list of them alongside all of the content from this podcast today as well. You've been listening to Tova, hosted and produced by me, Tova O'Brien. There's a new episode every Thursday. You can listen to them all at stuff.co.nz slash Tova or wherever you get your podcasts. If you follow us on your favourite podcast app, you'll get the latest episode automatically and keep an eye on the feed for bonus shortcasts. Thanks to audio editor wizard extraordinaire Connor Scott and executive producer, also extraordinary Chris Reed. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. A week is a long time in politics. Anything could happen. We got you. Kakite. If you like this podcast, please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz/support. Most GP practices in New Zealand are closed to new patients. What do people do if they can't see a GP? It's a real concern. A lot of people end up in the emergency department. We know those are overrun and we know that many, many people are turning up with conditions which really should be treated in primary care. We really need to look at the funding. We need to look at how that is distributed because we know if more money is put into primary health care, then we're, we're actually stopping people going to hospital. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts.